to Rabbit Hole Happy Hour. I'm Ashley. I'm Mallory. Welcome back, guys. <laughs> hey, we're we're here again. The introductions never get less awkward. No, they don't. But that's all right. Because what are you supposed to say over and over and over and over again? Yeah, without being lame. Yeah. So it is episode 36 and it's a big one. Took me a while to get done. Was pushing the limit today, and but that's I'm why here. we came at you with a mini last time. Yes, but anyway, what's new with you, Mal's? Mallory's <laughs> trying not to try burp. To burp. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what is new with me? Well, I got a whole bunch of new plants. Yeah, yeah, including a hibiscus tree and a canna lily and a. Crocus, I think is what it's called, or cro something. Crogon, cro- <laughs> crowbar, something. Cronan. I don't know. I don't remember now. <laughs> and she also got me some plants, yeah. which is so nice. I can't remember. I know they're called Heart of Jesus, <laughs> but I don't know what their actual name is. I looked it up the other day, but I forgot. Well, that's fitting because Jesus is in my heart. Easter is tomorrow. What? Wow. I did not know that. Caladium. Oh, yeah. Caladium. Caladium. You didn't know Easter's tomorrow? Um, No, what did I... Did I say I didn't know that? Yeah. Why did I say that? I knew I Easter know. was tomorrow. <laughs> I just went brain dead for a second. Yeah. Obviously. I have completely forgotten how we start podcasts. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, that's not interesting at all. So, uh, I had computer trouble today and had to tell Ashley that I didn't think I could edit this episode, but then it, it turns out I just needed to delete a bunch of shit off my hard drive so it could actually work. And were you <laughs> so impressed that your best friend is just so accommodating yeah. and nice that she was just like, don't worry about it. <laughs> but really, I was internally shitting my pants. Yeah. Because I knew it. I knew it. I was like, I don't want to tell her this. I don't want to tell my her this. My week, this this month is always the craziest month, April. There's always a million things going on. Still haven't done my taxes. I haven't done mine either. Always have a million trillion extra bills to pay because HOA and taxes and things and lots of birthdays. I have my son's birthday I'm planning and my own, which I won't be celebrating this month. Because there's no time. Work is insane. Absolutely insane. Oh my god. I just can't even. And to top it all off, we're traveling to Romania at the end of the month for a wedding that we're in. And also going to be staying and visiting family there. But I have been having the hardest time finding a dress I was about to ask, have you no, had any more luck? No, <laughs> I have literally ordered, not even exaggerating, 20 dresses. That's insane. And, I mean, I have a couple that I've kept just in case, like, they work, but I I don't like anything. Oh, my God. And it's hard because it's a wedding in a country where I've never been to a wedding. It's a lot more formal I've been told that Romanians are a lot more like flashy and yeah, that's the impression ultra, I have. Like, 
like to really dress up for things like this. Right. And that's totally not my vibe. I'm not flashy at all. In fact, the first dress I ordered was just black and long and, you know, the most basic thing you could ever think of. And I actually think I just might go with that and try to dress it up with jewelry because I, everything I try on, I'm like, this is awful. Anyway, it's oh it's really been a pain point in my life. Well, plus you're having to kind of make sure that it's more modest too, right? Yeah, it's going to be in an Orthodox church, so I don't want to really show my shoulders or I have tattoos. I don't really know how they would feel about that, so I want to be considerate because there's going to be wedding pictures and my husband and I are in like a large role in the wedding and just want to be like, I don't really know the I just don't know how much skin is too much skin to show yeah and I don't know how fancy is not fancy enough I don't know it's just weird yeah so we'll see what happens oh my god that's so stressful I do not envy you at all we're taking our he'll be three at the time we're taking our three-year-old son on a flight and if you guys have any like tips on how to travel overseas with a three-year-old we're going to have a connecting flight. There's only an hour in between our flights, oh, which God. stresses me out. We have Ugh. to bring a car seat, which I hope makes it to the country we're going oh, to. Oh, you just have to, yeah, because, check it into cargo or whatever? Yeah, like, because who knows? Like, we have an hour connection. Oh, like, God. Uh, how is it going to make it, it on the flight? I don't know. <laughs> and Tudor's like, it's fine. I'm like, it's not fine because if we don't have it, how can we drive? How can we go places? Right. You know what? I probably need a Xanax prescription. <laughs> And our layover is in Amsterdam, so maybe <laughs> we can get a few edibles for the plane ride or something. Yeah, do they sell those at the airport? So I can chill the fuck out. Oh my god, Ashley. Ugh. Yeah. That is horrible. I'm really worried. So if anyone has any like experience with traveling overseas with a child, how you do the car seat thing, how you do entertaining what you do about food because mm-hmm. toddlers and food it's just you got to stick with what you know and i don't know what food is going to be in romania right because i heard they don't have peanut butter so i know <laughs> i'm going to be bringing some <laughs> yeah. i forgot they don't have peanut butter what is that i that's what my husband told me and if that's they the don't that's thing. the saddest thing and i might actually bring a lot to share with everyone I meet. <laughs> yeah, I know. How do you live without peanut butter? Oh, my God. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so aside from that and work, the other thing that's been occupying my brain is watching the Letitia Stout trial. Oh, yeah. Which I am not caught up on. Me neither. But I'm just so glad it's finally happening. Mm-hmm. So after I get done with all of this, I'm going to be spending my time catching up on that trial, and I am just so looking forward to the jury finding her guilty and her just, like, never being on TV again. Yeah, never seeing the light of day again. That would be really nice. Yeah, we probably should say, I know, I think you posted, or did you post or you commented or something talking about how, maybe it was a message to somebody, how that bit of the video was not in what you had. Um. Yes. So guys, if you haven't listened to our last episode, it was a mini episode, but you know, they're never mini. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but 
I talked about after the break, I talked about Letitia Stouk and the disappearance of Gannon Stouk. And there was a video that I played where it was accidentally taken and it's Letitia scolding Gannon for spilling a candle on the floor. And she's saying stuff like, how are you going to pay for this? We're going to have to sell the couch or are we going to have to sell this or that? We don't want the landlady to be mad at us and kick us out, stuff like that. But we never did hear the end of the video where Gannon says, I'm just worried about my burns and his little, oh my God, 11 year old boy voice. And it, it, I physically was sick it when I heard that. So... I And she burns. Not only did he, he say that, she's like, shush, shush. Yeah. She was like, shh. And like scolding him. Like, if he's burned and crying. Oh, my God. I What a fucking bitch. She is so stupid. They play, in the trial, they play a lot of um, phone calls between Al and Letitia. Al is Gannon's father. I guess he, like, recorded their conversations undercover, mm-hmm. which, great job, Al. But she is so stupid. At one point, she's talking about a cat who has started it's period or something. And she is like blown away by the fact that cats get periods. Oh my like God. <laughs> she, she's just like, there's some blood or some shit coming out of the cat. I was like, what is this? I didn't know cats got periods. And like, she's just the most dumb mammals, bitch. Go to school. You're supposed to be a teacher, right? Yeah. Apparently she has a doctorate <laughs> in education. Yeah. Anything else? Any case updates other than that? You sent me something about the Idaho murders. Yeah. I saw Brian Enton tweeted that an ID connected to somebody from the murders in Idaho was found during one of the searches of Brian Koberger's residences. I don't know if that was his Pennsylvania residence or the one in Idaho, but yeah. Or did he live in Idaho or Washington? Was it like, I can't remember. He lived in Washington. Pullman, Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. So, and I I vaguely remember people saying something like that I before like it was I confirmed, too. like that he had that, but I, I don't think it was confirmed. Right, it was just like a rumor floating around, which you couldn't trust anything at that point. But yeah, that's crazy. That oh, I said it. Oh, okay, so <laughs> we're we're gonna do something. <laughs> we're gonna do something tonight. My family likes to let me know that we say that's crazy a lot. So we are going to try something new. We're going to try and say anything, but that, that literally anything, but anything, that. but that's crazy. So it might get a little weird and wild. It might get a little twisty, topsy turvy, might get a little dumb. Yeah, probably, right probably will go down the road, road of dumb, but that's what we do here. That is what we do here, and I don't care. (laughs) We've given up. Yeah. We're dumb. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, there's nothing else going on besides just stupid normal shit that is not interesting to talk about. So, But something will be going on on Monday. Lori Daybell. Oh, yeah. Opening. Opening statements happening. Yes. And you had told me that the judge is going to let... K. Yeah. And who else? Um, 
I can't remember who else, but I know that they're not letting Larry for some yeah, reason. So Larry was JJ's grandfather. They're not allowing him to be at trial because he they see him as not a victim. Right. But did you read that he is going to be a witness? Yes. And they are going to allow him to stay after he testifies? That's what I, yeah, I was about to say that. Because yeah. I read that, I think, just yesterday. So I'm hoping they call him early. Yeah, I hope they call him first and he can just stay. But, you know, that's only one day. Yeah. It's not going to be the whole time. Well, the, so they won't allow him to stay or, like, come back. It didn't sound like it. It sounded like they would only let him stay for the remainder of the day after he testifies. Oh, that's, uh, that's the impression I got, but oh I could God. be wrong, and I really hope I am. Yeah, because I, re- I really hope he gets to be in there. Yeah. Especially since it's not being streamed, you know? I know. Yeah, and it sounds like from Gigi's perspective from Pretty Lies and Alibis that they don't have a great view on the screens that they're allowed to watch because she was talking about how there was a court drawing released of Lori of her like wiping her eyes or something Whatever. Which, and by she, the way, that sketch artist needs to go back to art school. Yeah, they do. That was terrible. <laughs> I could do a like better her. sketch. I know, I could do. <laughs> oh, my God. But, yeah, she she was like, I didn't see her do that, but. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, we don't have a great view of her, you know. I didn't the realize they were watching screens. I thought she was going to be in the courtroom. I think they're in, like, a room like outside a, of the courtroom. Okay. I could be wrong, but I, I'm i pretty sure. Well, if you guys want updates on the Lori Daybell trial, go listen to Pretty Lies and Alibis. Like, I've mm-hmm. been listening to them since the Chandler Halderson case because she covered every day of the trial just based on watching the streams. But she has since blown up and now a part of law and crime as a reporter. She was at the Murdoch trial. Anyway, mm-hmm. she's awesome. She's just really respectful, and she reports the facts, and I love her. Yeah, she is awesome. So the so drink of the night, I really couldn't find anything related to my story, so I just kind of was craving this particular thing and wanted to keep it simple. We're going to be drinking a stout beer tonight. It's one of my favorites. It's called KBS and 12% alcohol content. <laughs> <laughs> Mallory's already halfway through. Apparently. Um, I feel like I haven't been talking a lot, so I'm just like, mm. yeah. Anywho, it's really, well, do you like it? I like it a lot. Yeah. yeah it's I like really it a lot. Good. I it's love really high gravity stouts so much. They are very good. Oh, we didn't mention last weekend we went out to dinner for my birthday. Oh, yeah. So you did celebrate a little bit. Oh, yeah. But that, that, was, that was the only thing. Yeah. So we went out to our downtown area where we live, mm-hmm. and there is a sushi restaurant that is so good. Yep. Unfortunate thing happened to Ashley, though. <laughs> while Very we were unfortunate. Walking to the sushi restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's been extremely windy here. Yeah, the weather has been odd. For it's sure. Been very weird. Like every day, my house has sounded like it's gonna just collapse because of the wind Mm -hmm. so it was a really windy day and we were walking towards the sushi restaurant ashley's wearing a dress and it blew her dress like all the way up 
I didn't see anything though. I think you caught it before anybody really it could see anything. It was a Marilyn Monroe moment, but yeah. unfortunately for me, I had a beer in my hand that was all the way filled up to the brim. Yeah. So that went all over a storefront window, <laughs> all over me. And all over my phone, which there's still like residue. Oh no, really? Um, because did it I'm... stain your case? Your no, carpet it didn't thingy? stain it, but it was all over the screen, and I still see like little specks every now and then oh, on there. Oh my god! Because it was a stout beer, and those are like pretty syrupy, so they like get really sticky. That's crazy. But it was a lot of fun. Mm. I said it. Oh, <laughs> it's gonna well, be hard. That's very loud. It's gonna be hard to break that habit. All right. Anyway, every time one of us says it, we get have to slap each other in the face. Yeah, maybe not, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Well, what you got for us tonight? All right. So it was very difficult for me to find a story in time. It wasn't in time, obviously. <laughs> but I, um, so I was just so fully obsessed with the Murdoch trial that it, like, took me forever to find anything that I thought could even touch mm-hmm. Mallory's story. And then the Letitia Stouk case, like I have been fully, fully obsessed with that. So it's been really, really hard for me to find something and work on it. But luckily for us, we have a list of listener recommendations. Nice. And yes. once again, Brooke, I was wondering, if one of our hers. listeners. <laughs> Came in clutch with a seriously strange rabbit hole. So shout out to Brooke. Nice, Brooke. We are on the same wavelength. We are soul sister. (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) We are bonded forever by weird shit. I told her she was the queen of recommendations. Yes. So this is a pretty well-known story, and I'm sure most of you will eventually recognize it. But while it's famous, I felt there was a great deal of mystery surrounding the woman at the center of it all. Hmm. Oh, this is a good, I do know this one, but it's a good one. Okay. And it's been a while since I've seen the Netflix series. Yes. The bombshell crime that landed this woman in prison is often the main narrative, but I wanted to go deeper into the woman behind the crime and tell the story in a different way and offer more insight and details into the psyche of this quote-unquote evil genius. So without further ado, let's jump in. Let's do it. August 28th, (laughs) 2003. Oh man, what a time to be alive. Is this a time capsule that you've got here? Yes, because you know I love to talk nostalgia. Yes. Um, So let's let's go back in time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) To a time where... Beyonce and Jay-Z's Crazy in Love dominated the charts. Mm-hmm. That's the one that's like, That's So Raven was the show to watch. Hell yeah. Yeah, she's hilarious. Floppy disks and VHS tapes were phased out, and it was all about CDs and DVDs. And the MTV Video Music Awards aired on this exact day, and Missy Elliott would win Video of the Year for Work It. And were there actually a bunch of Nokia phones in her music video? Yep. What? <laughs> yep. Those, and it's the Nokia phones you're thinking of, like the indestructible. Well, like this was also the year where landlines were being phased out and everyone mm-hmm. had that Nokia phone. That was my first cell phone. Me too. 
was the first one. And I would always play Snake. Yep. And then, I mean, the really rich and cool people would have the Motorola Razor. Yeah, I never had one of those. I never did either. I was not fortunate enough. I'm pretty sure the Nokia one was, like, free with your plan. Probably. Which was, like, singular <laughs> back in the day for me. Yes, that's what I had. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Singular. An iconic pop culture moment happened on this day at the VMA Music Awards. Why am I saying VMA Music Awards? Video Music Awards. Like it's, it's like saying <laughs> yeah. ATM machine. Okay. <laughs> it was the moment when Britney Spears and Madonna kissed on stage as they performed together. Oh, my God. An event that Stevie Nicks said, quote, was the most obnoxious television moment ever. Oh, oh Stevie. <laughs> and I don't know if you know, but Christina Aguilera was performing with them, too. And Madonna actually kissed her as well. But they cut away... And filmed Justin Timberlake's face, so they uh, didn't catch the kiss with no Christina way. Aguilera. Oh my god! And she got the short end of the stick. So, well, if it's, it probably comes to no surprise to you that I was not aware of this event at all, because <laughs> in 2003, I was still at my Christian school, being sheltered from all outside media, mm. not being allowed to listen to anything but Christian music. So I didn't know any of this shit. <laughs> But I'm sure you're familiar with Finding Nemo, which yes. came out on DVD in the year 2003. <laughs> I did see Finding Nemo, yes. So, yeah, it was a time, guys. I can't believe Finding Nemo was 2003. It seems like it wasn't that long ago. I I can't believe this was that long ago. This is, I mean... 20 years ago. Yeah. Insane. Was it a, ju- a junior? No. Soft. I was a junior. So I was a sophomore because you're a year ahead of me. But it feels like just yesterday. I don't know. Yeah. I can't believe that. <laughs> also, my brother is playing, probably playing Halo with his friends right now. So <laughs> he told me to tell him to shut up if he's too loud. <laughs> Halo's a throwback. Yeah, that's. That was probably the same time, too. Yeah, I was looking up everything related to this time because I just get really sucked into that kind of thing. The GameCube was really huge. PS2, Xbox Mm -hmm. 360, all of the classics, you know? Yeah. But in Erie, Pennsylvania, August 28th, 2003 seemed to be like any other day. It was a Thursday afternoon around 1.30 p.m. when a call came into Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. The owner of their restaurant answered the phone, but was having a hard time understanding the person on the other end. So he handed the phone to the pizza delivery man, Brian Wells. The caller placed an order for two pizzas to be delivered to 8631 Peach Street, an address a few miles from the pizzeria. Brian scrawled down some directions, and shortly after, he left to make the delivery. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Brian. He was 46, single, and lived alone with his three cats. Brian's neighbors described him as a very friendly guy, almost childlike and easily influenced. Linda Payne, Brian's landlady, said he was a very good renter and that he often would take his mother to the movies or to concerts. But something Brian really enjoyed was participating in the annual scavenger hunt in Erie called the Great Key Hunt. Every day, there would be a new clue in the Erie newspaper, and whoever made it to the end would get a cash prize. 
As an adolescent, Brian had undergone an evaluation at school where it was determined that he was highly intelligent, but troubled. He showed psychopathic tendencies. In what way, I'm not sure. Hmm. He'd always done well in school, but his father had multiple sclerosis, and as the disease progressed, Brian's grades started to slip. He ended up dropping out of high school at 16 to work as a mechanic, but for the last 10 years, he'd been working as a delivery driver at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. After his father died around when he was 33 years old, Brian had trouble with the law when he was charged and pleaded guilty to threatening to shoot a judge while he was in court for a dispute he had with a neighbor. Oh, God. (laughs) Buddy, calm down. (laughs) But aside from that, Brian was a pretty shy and friendly guy. He kept to himself and had only a few friends. If you were to turn on the afternoon news on August 28th, 2003 in Erie, Pennsylvania, you may have seen Brian. Because what started as a normal day delivering pizzas had led to him robbing a bank. Police were called and were quickly able to locate Brian in the parking lot of Eyeglass World. They quickly surrounded him and placed him under arrest. Brian told the police that he'd been taken hostage by some black guys and they had locked a bomb around his neck. But the police weren't buying it. Brian's demeanor was very calm and in the surveillance footage at PNC Bank, you can see him casually pick up a lollipop from the counter and pop it in his mouth. The police were pretty sure the bomb was fake, but they weren't taking any chances, so they called in the bomb squad. Now Brian was on TV screens, sitting on the pavement outside of Eyeglass World, surrounded by police with guns drawn. News outlets stood at a distance reporting on the situation. Then something started beeping slowly, and Brian seemed to get nervous. He pleaded for police to help him, but they kept their distance while the bomb squad made their way to Brian's location. Suddenly, the beeping got quicker, and then the device around Brian's neck exploded, killing him almost instantly. This is the saddest thing ever to watch because on the Netflix series, you get to see it. Yeah. (laughs) And it is... Just, I mean, they didn't, well, I guess they just didn't get to him in time. Yep. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't remember all the details now. I'm, now I'm remembering that I don't remember all the details. So. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't know the story, I was going to play you the clip. Oh, yeah. You seem to remember it very clearly. I so. will not forget that clip, yeah. actually. Yeah. It is very sad. He's sitting cross-legged in the parking lot. He's asking the police, like, have you talked to my boss? Did you let him know what's happening? Like, he's Ugh. concerned about his job. Yeah. And then when it starts beeping, you can see him getting nervous. And he's like, can someone come take this thing off of me? He's like, it's going to go off. And just oh. like crying for someone to help him. So awful. He's saying, I'm not lying. I think this is a real bomb. Like, please come take this thing off of me. But all of the police were, you know, too scared to go near him because... Who knows if it was a real bomb or not? Yeah. And as it turns out, the bomb squad was just four blocks away at the time the bomb went off. Oh, my God. They could have been there sooner, but the nearby street was blocked off for the public safety, which caused a big traffic jam. Oh, great. So they shot themselves in the foot on that one. Mm -hmm. 
The surveillance video at PNC Bank would show Brian Wells walking casually through the bank with what looked like a cane and something large and bulky under his shirt. The shirt he was wearing was odd. It was way oversized, and on the front, someone had written in permanent marker, guess. Like the clothing brand? It's weird. Yeah, that is really weird. Was it some kind of cryptic message or someone trying to be clever? I don't know. Yeah. As I said before, Brian appeared calm. Actually, he waited in line for a minute before deciding to go up to the counter to hand the teller a note. It was a nine-page note. Oh, my God. (laughs) Extremely rambly. The note was asking the teller for $250,000, but in the end, he actually only received $8,000. The teller claimed that as he exited the bank, he looked like Charlie Chaplin swinging his cane in the bag of money. The nine-page note was written in a very neat and uniform handwriting. Yeah. It wasn't natural at all. It looks... It It's so, I'm like, whoever did this is like really good at art probably. <laughs> well, it turns out it appeared as though someone had traced over a note that was oh. written on a typewriter. Okay. Due to some of the syntax, like they lined it up and it, like that. the indentation, the indents matched, the letter spacing matched. Oh, okay. That so makes it sense. it appeared it had been traced. So I I'll read a few little bits and bobs from this letter. It's very long, so I won't I don't think I'll read the whole thing. But the note directed at Brian says bomb hostage. You are to go to PNC Bank at Summit Town Center on Pete Street. Quietly give the following demand notes to a receptionist or bank manager. Do not cause alarm. Get required money and deliver to a specified location by following notes that you will collect as you race against time. Each note leads to the next note and a key until finished. You will collect several keys and a combination to remove the bomb. After, police won't charge you because you were a hostage. Most important rule, do not radio, phone, or contact anyone alerting authorities. Your company or anyone else will bring your death. If we spot police vehicles or aircraft, you will be killed. It goes on to talk about how the bomb is booby-trapped, so any tampering or trying to remove it will cause it to explode. They say they're watching him. If he doesn't obey, they will make it explode and others will die as well in the process. So they're telling him, stay calm and do as instructed in order to survive. Upon searching Brian's car, they found a cane that was actually a loaded gun along with more rambly notes. It appeared that the notes were like a scavenger hunt of sorts. At the end of the scavenger hunt, Brian would find the keys that would unlock the collar bomb before it exploded. The next stop on his list was a location off the interstate, so the police followed the clues and found a note in an empty coffee can off the side of the highway. That clue led them to another location off the highway where they found a tree branch with orange tape around it. The tape read Vietnam in the same neat handwriting. While at this area, police spotted a minivan a good distance away in a field driving right toward the area where the clue was found. They noticed the minivan stopped for a second as if the person noticed the police presence. And that's when it backed up and drove off. Police were unable to follow the van due to the wooded area where they'd pulled off, so this mysterious blue van got away. Dang it. 
The case was handed over to the FBI due to a federal bank being involved, and Jerry Clark was the lead investigator. They immediately executed a search warrant of Brian Wells' home, where they made entry via explosives. <laughs> what? They thought they just didn't know if there was like a tripwire or something. I mean, he had a yeah, bomb around his neck, so that's true. They just didn't know what they would find inside. Yeah, because I guess if if it was him, which they didn't know mm-hmm. if it was him or if he was truly being controlled by somebody. Yep, and he could have booby trapped his apartment, which is what fucking who did that? I've heard of our yeah, cases. Somebody, I feel like. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway. I have heard of that happening before. Yeah, like, they didn't know, like, what if it was, like, a suicide mission and this guy just wanted to kill people? And Oh, no. You know who I think it was? Was the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooter. Oh. I think he, I think he booby-trapped his apartment. Anyway, I don't know. I could be wrong. So they didn't really find anything in his home. The only thing of interest was an address book that contained the names and numbers of a few local sex workers. Oi. How embarrassing. That's very embarrassing. (laughs) Around 3 a.m. the next morning, Brian Wells' body was finally transported to the coroner's office. The collar was still intact, and as the key piece of evidence, they wanted to keep it that way. Oh, it's so scary looking. Yeah. I hate it. The mysterious notes claimed that the collar was booby-trapped and would detonate if tampered with. So in order to preserve evidence and for their own safety, the coroner was left with no other choice but to perform what they called a surgical decapitation. Mm. In other words, they cut Brian's head off in order to retrieve the collar bomb intact. Which I was so shocked about that they had to go to that length. Like, they can't just cut off a piece that looks... yeah. I guess they thought it could have blown up again. I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, wasn't his family, like, upset about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It looks pretty nasty, though. It looks like a huge handcuff. It does look like a huge handcuff with wires sticking out of it and, like, a big bulky... I guess that's where the bomb was on the front. Yeah. The coroner, Korak Timon, states that it was one of the most difficult decisions he's ever made. He claimed that the process was handled with care and respect. As the investigation continued, it was discovered that the call for the pizza delivery came in at 1.30 p.m. and was made from a payphone from a nearby Shell gas station. The address provided led officers to a dirt road leading up to a very remote location. It was basically an abandoned radio tower. Investigators were able to recover Brian's shoe and tire impressions, placing him at the site. There were scuffs in the dirt that indicated some kind of struggle. However, they were not able to find any DNA or forensic evidence to lead to who was behind this. And then another pizza delivery man died days later on Sunday, August 31st. He was a co-worker of Brian's named Robert Thomas Panetti. I don't remember this. The 43-year-old was discovered unresponsive by his family in his home it kind of felt like these two incidents may have been connected. Panetti's behavior drastically changed after the bombing. He suddenly seemed nervous, paranoid, and started to seek protection. Panetti was actually at the pizza shop the day of the bombing and talked to police. They wanted him to come down to the station for an interview, but he requested his interview be moved to the next Monday. But Monday never came. 
the coroner found a lethal amount of drugs in Robert Panetti's system. Addiction is not uncommon in Erie, and police wondered if maybe he suffered from a drug problem and took too much due to stress from what happened to his friend and accidentally OD'd. Oh my god. But no one really knows for sure. That's really weird. I know. This story was dubbed the Pizza Bomber Case, and it became worldwide news. Outlets began sharing pictures of both the bomb and the cane to see if anyone could recognize any of its components. They described the suspect as a handyman, someone who is familiar with or makes weapons of war, and that this person may be patient, secretive, and deceptive. The collar bomb was intricate. A replica was built to better understand the person that built it. It was estimated that this bomb may have taken up to a month to build. The collar operated like a handcuff. Once it was closed, it would lock into position. The bomb's timer would have been started by the release of a cotter pin. There were a lot of red herrings built into the design of the bomb to prevent it from being tampered with. While it appeared intricate, it was essentially two pipe bombs and a couple of egg timers. Hmm. There were several overly wordy warning labels on the device to keep anyone from tampering with it. It had four key locks and a tumbler lock, but only two of the locks required keys. The scavenger hunt was basically a large circle around the perimeter of the bank. What kind of sense does that make? Yeah, what? How did these masterminds think Brian wouldn't get caught? I know. The PNC Bank was in the center of Erie, which is located in northern Pennsylvania. You would only need to go 20 miles east to get to New York or 20 miles west to get to Ohio. Investigators say that if the goal was money, the way to do it would have been to drive one car to the bank, rob it, and hop into another car and make it across state lines. The scavenger hunt was nothing but a hoax. It turned out there was no key, even if Brian made it to the last step. It seemed like the desired outcome wasn't money, but was actually Brian dying from the bomb. Yeah, that's so bad shit yeah yeah (laughs) couldn't think of a word because i'm not allowed to say the other one i know so if they wanted the money if they wanted it to be easy why make him go on this like scavenger hunt around the bank yeah you think you'd want him to get from point a to point b is fast as possible yeah maybe you do the scavenger hunt in the beginning right trying to be like quirky about it or something (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) so yeah it was very odd the investigation continued but with no new leads and then three weeks after the bombing 911 dispatchers receive a call from a bill rothstein remember this guy i remember this guy bill do you want to describe what he looks like Because it's a very unique kind of guy. He is a very unique kind of guy. When you look at him, well, so he's got, he he looks like a very large dude. Uh, I'm not sure if that's actually true or not, but he looks like he's very tall, but also just big. He's got white hair and a beard, but his face looks young to me. Yeah, it does. He honestly doesn't look like he's out of his 40s in this picture. Mm Mm-hmm. But he's got overalls on that has like 100,000 pins 
and like notebooks and papers and shit all in his <laughs> um, overalls. Their car hearts, how trendy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he's wearing glasses. And, and he's got the very uh, Buddy Holly glasses, I guess you would say. Yes, they are. So, yes, Bill Rothstein calls 911, and he gives his address, 8645 Pete Street, and claims there is a dead body in his freezer in the garage. He claims there is a woman there that they may want to question, and her name is Marjorie Deal. The responding officer, Ron Morgan, knew Bill Rothstein, he was actually the best man in one of his in-laws' weddings. So odd. That is a very weird coincidence. Bill tells Officer Morgan about Marjorie, how he was afraid of her, that she was very intelligent, and that her mood swings were off the charts. Bill told the officer that Marjorie had asked him for his help in moving and disposing of a body. She specifically wanted him to put the frozen body in a wood chipper. Officer Ron Morgan had Bill Rothstein come down to the station to give the police more information, while another group of officers went to search Bill's home. The home was literally right down the street from the abandoned radio tower where Brian Wells was delivering pizza. Police immediately thought this may be connected to the pizza bomber case. Bill told the police what unfolded. Marjorie showed up at Bill's house and told him she needed his help. She, in so many words, told him that she needed help removing her boyfriend's dead body from her home. <laughs> Such a normal request. Just, you know, help me out. Yeah. Be a neighbor. Bill said he obliged because he felt sorry for her and didn't want her to get in trouble. The two had a romantic past, and Bill would seemingly do anything for Marjorie. Ah. So he showed up to her house, removed the body, put it in the back of his van and then put the body in a freezer in his garage. The body found inside the freezer was a man by the name of James Roden. He'd been dating this Marjorie woman for about 10 years. Marjorie wanted Bill to completely destroy the body, but Bill didn't think he could do that, and he kept stalling. Eventually, at the request of Marjorie, he purchased a meat grinder, but said he did that just to buy more time. Bill gave himself two options— Either he was going to kill himself or he would go to the police. Ultimately, he decided to go to the police. They began to ask Bill if there was any connection between James Roden and Brian Wells. Bill said no and that he's not comfortable talking about it. Well, the police are asking you, so maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> Get comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so that was three deaths in three weeks, and all of them Ugh. were oddly connected. Yeah. But who was Marjorie? Yeah, who this bitch? Who that? We're only at the tip of the iceberg. So let's dive deeper and go way back in time. Because that's kind of necessary to somewhat understand this woman. On February 26th, 1949, in Erie, Pennsylvania, Agnes and Harold Deal welcomed their first and only child into the world. A baby girl who they'd named Marjorie. The Deals did well for themselves. Agnes had her master's degree in education and taught high school and elementary school, while Marjorie's father, Harold, or Hub as people called him, Hub, was a World War II veteran who built locomotives at General Electric. Ooh, train builder. After the war, he went on to become a construction foreman, where he sold aluminum awnings door-to-door. -door. The two were a power couple of sorts. 
Most families did not bring in dual income in those days, and it served the Deal family well. Marjorie was raised in a stable household, and as an only child, was accustomed to being in the spotlight, which is how she liked it. Okay, so you're telling me she had normal parents, mm-hmm. and a normal upbringing. Yep. I'm not expecting this. Okay. Because she's batshit. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what else you have. You know a lot more than the listeners do. Well, I may not remember it. <laughs> she was never what you'd call normal. She was awkward, lonely. As a child, Marjorie looked up to people whom she felt held a higher standing than her own parents. She idolized a relative who was well-known in Erie, who'd graduated from Yale and was an esteemed educator who was later named superintendent of schools. When he died, he was honored on the front page of the local papers, and the local elementary school was even named after him. Marjorie loved to brag to anyone who would listen about her connection to such greatness. She also idolized her maternal grandparents, George and Eleanor Wolfenden, who lived next door. Her grandfather, George, was a police sergeant who built houses on the side, which Marjorie thought was amazingly admirable. She saw her grandparents as rich and was very fixated on money. She learned from a very early age the power money could have. She believed that her grandparents' and parents' wealth was destined to be hers, and she fancied herself an heiress and had an exaggerated sense of superiority. A cherished childhood memory of Marjorie's was her grandparents showing her inside of their safe. She was obsessed with looking at the stacks of cash, which is so odd for a child. (laughs) I'm just imagining a little girl. Old hot cash. (laughs) Like, what? Just, like, sitting there admiring these stacks of cash. Yeah. Like, really? So bizarre. Maybe this obsession with status was the result of her parents' focus on overachievement and the importance they placed on money. Growing up, Marjorie was aware of her mother's love for her, but in her mind, her mother would accept nothing less than perfection. Marjorie had a, quote, frenzied and pressured girlhood, packed with music lessons and other activities, such as scouts. Marjorie was often referred to as a musical prodigy. She started piano lessons at five years old, was enrolled in the Erie Conservatory of Music, where she graduated at 14. She taught music at the age of 12, and was the church organist at the age of 16, where she eventually became the music director. She played cello in school and without fail was always first chair. While Marjorie loved her mother, she felt the pressure of her constant scrutiny. She could recognize that her mother's pursuit for perfection was not affecting her well. It was amplified even more due to her father's absence. She claimed He was an alcoholic and always at the bars. Okay, I'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning. I will briefly be discussing disordered eating, so please skip ahead 30 seconds if that's a sensitive topic for you. When Marjorie was 12, she underwent a change. She no longer felt in control of her thoughts, and the constant pressure to be the best had caused her to become anxious and almost paralyzed by the thought of making a mistake. She regained a sense of control by not eating and was diagnosed with anorexia. Marjorie lost a great deal of weight. She went from 135 pounds to 90 pounds and had to be hospitalized. 
the anorexia was Marjorie's way to rebel against her parents. She experienced this life-threatening disease right as she was going through puberty. The changes she underwent made her self-conscious, so she used her eating disorder as a defense against the sexual advances of men. She attempted to regain control over her life by not eating. She said she'd rather die than lose control. Marjorie struggled with the eating disorder for two years before medical professionals intervened. They suggested she needed a break from her mother. So at 14 years old, Marjorie moved in with her grandparents. The change of scenery really made a difference in her recovery, and despite her troubles, Marjorie continued to achieve. She was an excellent student, graduating at the top of her class and was valedictorian. In 1970, Marjorie would graduate a year early with two bachelor degrees, one in sociology and another in social work. She wasn't exactly sure what her mission was in life, but her first goal was to find a job that could provide a stable income. She started out working in a variety of secretarial roles, but was unable to hold down a job. She felt she was above these entry-level jobs. Marjorie's career goals took a back seat when she met a man named Bill Rothstein. Oh my god, look at Bill. She's really pretty, by the way, mm-hmm. when she was younger. Yep. I kind of think Bill's handsome. Bill is not bad. Bill's very unique looking. Yeah. He looks like he'd be a hipster. Yeah, he does. Bill was Marjorie's first love. He was a 26-year-old substitute teacher and a jack-of-all-trades type. He was eccentric and an intellectual and was not shy about it. He'd often remind people that he was the smartest man in the room, which is so unattractive. Yeah, (laughs) I hate that shit. He also worked at his parents' Rolla-Cola plant. Wait, did you say Rolla-Cola? Yeah. What's Rolla-Cola? It was a cola brand. What? (laughs) Okay. And that's where he worked. (laughs) And it still exists, apparently. Wow. Is that RC Cola? Mm-hmm. Oh. I think so. Oh. I think. I mean, that's like... Alexa, is Rolla Cola RC Cola? From wikipedia.org, it was bottled by RC Cola. Alexa, what is Rolla Cola? A roller coaster. No. <laughs> it's a type of amusement ride that employs a form of elevated railroad. Alexa, stop. Elevator railroads. Elevated railroads. Well, I think it is. But now I'm going to check. <laughs> I need to know. Roll a cola. Is it RC Cola? <laughs> my, Google, <laughs> my Google searches are so weird. No, RC Cola is short for Royal Crown Cola. Oh, okay. Roll a cola must have died. But I thought I saw, I looked up Roll a cola because, you know, I do that kind of thing when yeah. I'm doing these stories. <laughs> Well, obviously, I was curious about it, too. So. They relaunched it as, like, a nostalgia bomb. Oh. Um, it was relaunched in the UK in 2013. Damn. I must not have had... Uh, staying power. Staying power in the U.S. I love some cola. <laughs> love cola. I, I love need a cola. cola. I love cola. It's a weird word. In this picture, doesn't it look like his head is dented? Oh my god. <laughs> Ew. I just noticed that. It looks like a walnut. He and Marjorie were both attracted to one another's intelligence. 
they quickly got engaged and Marjorie moved in with Bill and his parents. Oh, that was very progressive of them. Mm-hmm. They were able to get Marjorie a job at the plant and she seemed to be happy with how her life was going. But then Marjorie broke up with Bill. Marge! She had started experiencing extreme, uncontrollable mood swings, and she knew she would not be able to commit to a marriage in this condition. While Marjorie knew she couldn't commit to a marriage with Bill, that didn't mean she wanted to be alone. She craved companionship, and not long after calling off her engagement, she met 29-year-old Robert Thomas, or Bob as he was called. He was a handsome Navy veteran, but he had a dark side. He had a history of abusing women and suffered from schizophrenia and PTSD after serving in the Vietnam War. Oh, man. Run for the hills! It's really sad how, man, I just think about, like, at work, we have a lot of suicides that are veterans. veterans. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. And they, I mean, it's all a laundry list of mental health issues. Schizophrenia, bipolar PTSD, everything you can think of. Oh my God. They... I would only think that they would have PTSD. I didn't know like other mental illnesses can develop from trauma. Well, okay. I Maybe don't know they just that had... that's true. <laughs> Maybe they had them to begin with, but it was exasperated by the PTSD. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, that could very well be. We have mental health professionals that listen to our podcast. If you would like to... Yeah. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. The schizophrenia or the PTSD? It's very sad either way. Yeah, it is. Their relationship lasted seven volatile months. The pair fought constantly, and Marjorie realized that she had to leave this toxic situation and get help with her own mental health, because something was very wrong. Her mood swings were getting more aggressive. She was paranoid and felt everyone was out to get her. She viewed herself as better than everyone else. So in August of 1972, at 23 years old, Marjorie sought the help of a psychiatrist, and she received a diagnosis. She had bipolar disorder. She showed self-aggrandizing thinking and often exaggerated. She displayed pressured speech, which is when words flow like an unstoppable torrent. Her caseworker also made a note that it appeared that Marjorie had a deep-seated hatred of men, which Marjorie disagreed with. Hmm. She was relieved by her diagnosis. It made sense. Although the caseworker could not prescribe Marjorie medications, the diagnosis seemed to help her understand herself, and while she didn't improve, she didn't get worse. Marjorie went on to pursue her master's degree from Gannon College, where she studied education. She graduated in 1975 and secured a substitute teaching role in the Erie school system. She figured it should be pretty easy to become a teacher full-time since her mother still worked at the school. When her mother was unable to help her get a permanent position, Marjorie was enraged. Her mental health continued to deteriorate. Her paranoia was at an all-time high, and in May of 1976, Marjorie sought mental help, but this time by a licensed psychiatrist. Marjorie saw dozens of doctors and racked up multiple diagnoses. Bipolar disorder, mania, and one physician even diagnosed her with narcissism. 
Marjorie took pride in her bipolar diagnosis, noting how it was often linked to genius. She'd often list off people who struggled with the disorder, who went on to do great things. Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, and Vincent Van Gogh. She saw herself on their level and viewed herself as a genius and musical prodigy. So I ended up looking up famous people with bipolar. There yeah. are so many. I didn't know Abraham Lincoln had been diagnosed with I didn't it. either, but there are so many celebrities really? who have bipolar disorder that you would never know. Dang. It's just interesting. It is interesting. Marjorie ended up finding Dr. Callahan, a psychiatrist who was able to get Marjorie on track with the help of medication. She visited Dr. Callahan every two weeks and seemed to be improving under his care. Marjorie felt ready to once again pursue a career, but although her education was impressive, her work history left a lot to be desired. The only jobs willing to take a chance on Marjorie were minimum wage secretarial positions. And that is not good enough for her. But Marjorie needed more. (laughs) So she set off to create her own way of making money. In 1980, Marjorie founded the Erie Women's Center. The center offered services and resources for women facing unplanned pregnancies. The center was best known for helping women arrange abortions. I wonder if that's still a thing today. Mm -hmm. It is, like Planned Parenthood. No, I mean like her specific. It is, because I looked it up. Really? Yeah, it's still there. That's crazy. It's, that's new. It's kind of newborn. slightly changed. No. <laughs> it's newborn. <laughs> it's kind of kind of slightly changed the name, but it's in Erie, Pennsylvania, and it's like, wow, yeah. damn. They don't talk about her. I'm sure they don't. <laughs> Marjorie would meet with women, perform pregnancy tests, and determine if the women were able to undergo an abortion. She would then refer them to a clinic in Buffalo, New York. Marjorie was then paid for every referral. Sometimes Marjorie would lie about the pregnancy results just to get the referral fees. I'm realizing how ironic it is. (laughs) It's newborn. I know. I was like, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) It was on my brain because of this. I don't know. I was trying not to say the word crazy. What were you trying to say? I was trying not to say the word crazy. So you said newborn? Yeah. Oh, my God. Forgive me, everyone. <laughs> I'm just glad I'm not the one listening to the story, so I don't have I know. To. I realized. I was like, God damn it. It's all going to be me. Yep. So sometimes Marjorie would lie about the pregnancy results just to get the referral fees. Police were alerted to the scam and needed to catch her in the act. So they set up a sting of sorts. They had an undercover female officer come into the center But when Marjorie asked the woman for a urine sample, the officer secretly provided a male officer's pee. Ooh. Tricky. Yeah. Lo and behold, Marjorie told the officer she was pregnant and referred her to the abortion clinic in Buffalo. She charged the woman $150 for her services, and at that point, she was placed under arrest for criminal conspiracy and theft by deception. So, what happened when these women went to the abortion clinic? I wish I knew. Did they go ahead and do, like, a DNC or, like... I mean, wouldn't they have to do, like, a, um ultrasound first? I don't know. I'm not sure. I would assume they would do an ultrasound, you know, 
Yeah. To, or they would confirm. Right. Like with another pregnancy test. But then, well, I guess, yeah. I don't That's. I don't think they would just dive in <laughs> and just wreck their uterus. Okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't think they would do that. That would be really bad. I mean, it was the, what, how long ago was this? This was in the 80s. Well, okay, maybe they did take those extra precautions. But (laughs) (laughs) it's just, I can't imagine being told I'm pregnant and then going to the abortion clinic or wherever. And then they're like, no, you're not. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Being told you're pregnant is like, and not wanting to be pregnant would be such a mental yes like it would be such a hard concept to wrap your mind around and then making the decision to have an abortion you have to go through that mental anguish yes and then, anguish and then it's it wasn't even true oh my god oh my god i would be so mad i oh my god what i thought there was terrible oh my god <laughs> mallory where did that come from? Holy fucking There's shit. Hair. Oh my god. I have, there's hairballs <laughs> all over this house because my hair is just everywhere. Okay. Mine too. Marjorie avoided jail time and only had to participate in an accelerated rehabilitation program. <laughs> Are you laughing? <laughs> You're thinking ball. about the hairball? <laughs> Intense <laughs> moment. Yeah. You're still recovering? Yeah. Oh, my God. Woo. All right. Okay. Marjorie avoided jail time and only had to participate in an accelerated rehabilitation program where she was given a probation sentence. Her crime wasn't violent, and it was her first brush with the law. So once she completed the program, her record was wiped clean and she was on her way. Okay. So a slap on the wrist. Yep. Unfortunately, Marjorie's psychiatrist ended up moving away. And Marjorie didn't want to resume her treatment for her bipolar. And things started to unravel again. Marjorie's childhood best friend, Susan, would describe Marjorie as magnetic. She said she had an aura around her, but she was intense and talked a lot. Susan was always aware of Marjorie's mental illness. Sometimes Marjorie would call her up and talk for three hours straight without letting Susan get a word in. Oh, God. Susan could see Marjorie's life slowly begin to spiral. She began hoarding more than normal. Stuffed animals were one of her favorite things to collect. Among one of Marjorie's favorite stuffed animals were her beanie babies. Oh, God. (laughs) As was every kid. But, you know, when you're a kid and you really wanted a new beanie baby and Mm. they were already all sold out. Yeah. It was because people like Marjorie (laughs) were going and buying all the damn beanie babies. Yeah. You know, it's not fair. It should have been, it's not fair. It should have been kids only. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, she loved her some beanie babies. That woman's home was jam packed with them. Oh my God. Her hoarding was to the extent that she would pull over in her car to pick up trash she saw on the side of the road. Susan remembers a time when she pulled over to retrieve a discarded car seat. Marjorie didn't have kids, 
She didn't even plan to. And she didn't even know anyone with kids. Oh, my God. But still, she needed the car seat. This is sounding like my grandmother. <laughs> oh, no. Was she a hoarder? Oh, my fucking God. I mean, when they, well, after my grandfather died, moving her out of that house was the biggest nightmare. Like, it, it wasn't, her house wasn't hoarder level on the, in like the main living areas, but her basement you couldn't even, there were just pathways, mm-hmm. you oh know? Oh, my God. And oh, my God. now she lives with my mom, and she will not throw a single thing away. There are, like, stacks of junk mail and, like, just crap that no one needs. She's like, I could need that someday. Yeah. I could need it. Um, well, you're 95, so. <laughs> so I was, I was reading about hoarding, and a lot of times... Hoarders are perfectionists. And when you think of a perfectionist, you might think of someone whose home is spotless. But some people are perfectionists to the level where they are so concerned with making the wrong decision that they just don't make any decision at all. You know what? I can relate to that. I can too. I think everyone could. Yeah. They just don't make any decision at all. Mm -hmm. They just are like, okay, well, we'll just keep that. Yeah. But Marjorie was to the level where... Her decisions were she's going to pick up that shit on the side of the road. Yeah, and that's bring it home. extreme. That's, that's extreme. Yeah. Marjorie Deal was now in her mid 30s and on social security disability for her mental illness. Dang. While taken care of, Marjorie would abuse the system and visit food pantries three to five times a week with signed notes from her friends citing that she was authorized to pick up food for them. Sometimes she would make up stories like she was a mother of three children and was struggling to feed them. There was no end to her hoarding. Another thing Marjorie would fixate over was her teeth. Nice teeth was the pinnacle of beauty for Marjorie, and Hmm. she would brush her teeth exactly 32 times a day. 32? Your gums are going to recede before you're (laughs) fucking 40. They're going to be gone. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't think that was very good. No, that's bad. Her teeth were clean, but her house was something else plus you're gonna wear your enamel away quicker oh poor especially if you're using abrasive toothpastes i'm sorry i'm going into (laughs) dental mode marjorie or not marjorie mallory (laughs) has a dental background yeah in 1984 marjorie reconnected with robert thomas after 10 years of being separated robert or bob was the navy veteran who suffered from his own mental health issues Marjorie and Bob picked up right where they left off in their toxic and abusive relationship. The two moved in together and lived in squalor, and Marjorie's hoarding intensified. They enabled one another's worst behavior, and the relationship was downright scary. Bob would get violent with Marjorie, beating her if things weren't to his liking. Oh, God. According to Marjorie, things got so bad that she started to fear for her life. This is when she made the decision to buy a gun on July 25, 1984. A 35 Smith & Wesson revolver that she claimed was a birthday gift for Bob. Definitely wasn't bought for any other reason, and absolutely wasn't intended to be used to shoot her boyfriend six times as he slept. Oh, Christ. 
But she did just that on July 30th. Wait, so she killed Bob, too. I mean, she killed Bob. <laughs> yep. <sighs> yep. Oh my God. Yeah, I definitely didn't remember. I don't know if they said this in, in the Netflix thing, but I don't remember. Wow. Yep. Later that day, Marjorie told a friend what she had done, claiming it was in self-defense. Oh. I mean, he was violent. I guess it was believable. <laughs> right. Did she, but did she tell the friend it was when he was sleeping? Or did she tell the friend it was when he was beating the shit out of her? She just said it was self-defense. She didn't tell anyone he was sleeping. Okay. She asked her friend to help her get rid of the body. The friend called her sister. <laughs> no. If it was in self-defense, you call the police. You don't say, hey, Ashley, I just killed Brent. Can you come help me dump this? <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, my God. What if I put you in that position? <laughs> Dude. You'd be like, babe, uh, go to the police. Yeah. You just need to go to the police. I'd be like, Mallory, I will support you all the way. Go to the police. We'll figure this out. It's going to be okay. That's what you should always say. I would yes. not get involved. I'm so I, sorry. I, to be honest, though, I would think about it for a second. I would think about it. Mm-hmm. Because it's you. Oh. <laughs> but. Watch out, Tudor. Ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> I think some convincing would be. You know, done to yeah. uh, go to the police. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some a sit down chat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Marjorie told this friend what she had done, claiming self-defense. She asked her friend to help her get rid of the body. The friend called her sister, who showed up to pick the women up. Whose sister? The friend's sister. Okay, okay. So the friend called her sister, who showed up to pick the women up, not knowing what had just gone down. When she heard what Marjorie had done and that she was expecting help getting rid of the body, the sister of the friend ordered Marjorie out of the car immediately. Yeah. Before going to law enforcement. Good. Good. The police drove up and down the streets of Erie searching for Marjorie when they finally found her with a bag containing $18,000 in cash. Now, where did that come from? She was trying to solicit people to help her cut her boyfriend's body up with a chainsaw and bury it. Oh, uh, my God. She was going around with a bag of $18,000. Where did she get $18,000? <laughs> I mean, she had money. She just, yeah, that was her funds. Oh, my God, dude. I know. We know who she should have gone to. Who? Who she went to in the future. Fucking Bill. I know. Bill would have had her covered. Yeah. Yeah. She learned her lesson. Yeah. Police searched Marjorie's home and located Bob Thomas's dead body sprawled out on the sofa, surrounded by stacks and stacks of trash. They had just walked into one of the worst hoarding situations they had ever seen. Marjorie was placed under arrest and charged with the murder of her boyfriend, Robert Thomas. On August 2nd, 1984, police arrived at Marjorie Deal's rented home to search for evidence. She lived in a middle-class neighborhood lined with trees. In an attempt to search the home, 
the Erie police, along with officials from the Erie Health Department, had to clear the house in order to make it safe to walk around. Neighbors and onlookers stared in horror at what was being carried out of the home. The sheer amount of trash in the 672-square-foot bungalow was shocking. The house was packed from the basement to the attic. Government surplus food was the most notable thing in the house. The smell of rotting food permeated throughout the residence. It was packed into cabinets, closets, but most of it was stored in the attic, which would reach temperatures as high as 95 degrees. (laughs) Get ready. Get ready for this. The estimated value of her food hoard was about $10,000, which in today's money is about $29,000. What? Here is just a small fraction of the food they found in the home. Oh, God. 389 pounds of butter. What? Luckily, it was refrigerated. Wait, how did she have room for that much butter? How many refrigerators did she have? I don't know what 389 pounds of butter looks like. I mean... A huge um, man? uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. I don't know. I mean, it would have to be, right? She must have had several refrigerators. And why are you getting that much butter? She was taking all she could get from that pantry. I don't know. Oh, my God. I don't understand. That's not all. 727 pounds of cheese. <gasps> not not refrigerated. Oh my god. Pies and pastries were strewn around the house. Stacks and stacks of moldy bread were in the refrigerator. Oh my god. 111 five-pound boxes of dried milk. Ugh. 37 dozen eggs. 111 cans of tuna, 231 cans of veggies, 55 packages of frozen meat, 50 boxes of cornflakes. This is literally just the smallest amount. Like, I could not go through it all. Ma'am, there are starving children in Africa. What are you doing? That's what my parents used to tell me. (laughs) When I wouldn't eat my dinner. Yeah, (laughs) you weren't hoarding... (laughs) 727 pounds of cheese, or whatever it was. Can you imagine? 727 pounds of cheese, (laughs) unrefrigerated, in a 95 degree (laughs) attic. I want to know, were they different types of cheese, or was it all cheddar? (laughs) Are you freaking jealous? I do want some of it, but no, not attic cheese. I don't want attic cheese. That's horrifying. The list goes on and on. The house looked like a bomb went off in a supermarket. Four tons of food was taken away in a garbage truck. Four tons was the final count? (laughs) Oh, uh, my God. That's two elephants, right? Yeah, I don't know how much an elephant weighs, but... I thought it was two... T- or maybe I'll say two cars or something. Like, good God. Yeah. So, needless to say, with that much garbage and rotting food, there were a ton of rats. Oh, yeah. 
the house posed a major health hazard. Marjorie was assigned a defense attorney, Leonard Ambrose, who had her analyzed by mental health professionals four times due to her bipolar disorder. She was eventually moved from the jail to a psychiatric hospital to receive better treatment. Her trial was postponed for years. It wasn't until 1988, four years after the shooting, that Marjorie was deemed competent to stand trial. Ultimately, the jury found her not guilty, and she was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Oh my god. Oh my god. Why? They had people come up to talk about how bad Bob Thomas was, and I mean, she said that he was abusive, and yeah, I don't know. She convinced but him. But couldn't was- you tell from a forensic standpoint whether the person was awake or asleep while they were being shot? They had to have, but I guess for some reason the jury damn, just thought that she shouldn't be charged. God, that is so nutso. This verdict cemented a belief that Marjorie had long held. She was better than everyone else, and she could get away with anything. Oh, God. She was, however, put on probation for carrying a firearm without a license. BTW, she lied on the application form, stating she did not have a mental illness, when that is the exact opposite of what she has. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Years later, her defense attorney would say, quote, the Erie County District Attorney's Office never should have prosecuted her in the Thomas case, but should have agreed to have her institutionalized for the rest of her life because she was a danger to society. She happened to be smart, which made her even more dangerous and manipulative and devious. It was only a matter of time before she did the same thing again. After her release from jail, Marjorie's parents bought her a house on Sunset Boulevard in Erie so she would be set up for success with a fresh start. She intended to start a new life. Wait, what were you? Sorry. (laughs) No, go ahead. What, did they uh, demolish the old house? Because it was like... It was a rental. Oh, God. Can you imagine me? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Those poor owners. They probably had to be condemned. Like, oh, yeah. Bye, house that you owned. Bye. I wonder if she had to, like, pay them back. I know. I don't know. Did she get to keep her deposit? (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure the security deposit's out the window at that point. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, yeah, her parents bought her a new house on Sunset Boulevard, and she intended to start a new life for herself. Isn't that nice? That's nice. Let's take a break, Mallory. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay, bye. See you. For a second. And we're back, babies. We're back. We've refreshed our bevs. I hope it's not to your distaste because I had no mixers. (laughs) It's actually delicious. I love it. Oh, good. (laughs) We only had the one beer, so... I have now used tequila, lime juice, and good old water to make a skinny marg. (laughs) 
Very skinny indeed. Yeah. <laughs> which is needed after this stout. That's true. Stouts make you stout, apparently. Oh, God. Okay, here we go. A year after being acquitted for murder, Marjorie thought it was about time she settled down and found a real commitment. You'd think after her last relationship, she might want to avoid men altogether, especially abusive and mentally ill men. Yeah. But nope. 40-year-old Marjorie met a new man, 42-year-old Richard Armstrong. That was the best picture I could find. <laughs> Literally looks like a picture from a war-torn country. Like <laughs> It was the only picture on the internet. Oh, my God. You want to explain the picture? I oh, mean, my God. I mean, it's just extremely blurry. And it's, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to describe it. It's a man with a beard. And it looks like an old... War photo. I don't know. <laughs> I know. It looks, it's an awful photo. I think in the docuseries, Evil Genius, they have the full photo of this photo, and it's not as war torn as this one. <laughs> but the internet let me down. Oh, man. Richard was a musician. He would teach trumpet lessons from out of his house, along with many other small jobs. Richard was also a paranoid schizophrenic. What is going on? Why does everyone have paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar or, I mean, god dang, everyone yeah. in her life. Yeah, I don't know. But the schizophrenia was one of the reasons why he couldn't maintain any one job for a very long time. Marjorie met Richard on the street in downtown Erie. He stopped her and commented on the one thing Marjorie really cared about, how others saw her. She recalls him saying, quote, are you for real? I can't believe that is all natural beauty. Mm -hmm. That's all it took. Marjorie <laughs> was smitten. Damn. The two connected on their love for music and quickly fell head over heels with one another. Unfortunately, Richard had similar qualities to herself and to her last boyfriend. He had an explosive temper that would appear out of nowhere. He was constantly suspicious. He'd often fabricated situations in his head and take out his anger on Marjorie. In fact, Richard was arrested after assaulting her in public. Marjorie pressed charges on Richard after he threw bricks at her in the street. Jesus Christ. Injuring her legs and denting her car. He threatened to kill her and set her car on fire. God! Uh, calm down. What is wrong with people? I know. He was found guilty of simple assault and terroristic threats where he served 30 days in jail. While in jail... Richard received psychiatric care for the first time ever. He was prescribed medication to lessen his symptoms of his schizophrenia. He was released three weeks later, and Marjorie vowed to never see him again. Just kidding. <laughs> the two got married. Oh my god. Literally right after he was released. What is wrong with these people? What, you wouldn't get married to someone who throws bricks at you? No. And threatens to kill you no. and set your car on fire? I sure wouldn't. Oh. 
Okay. <laughs> You're weird. The nuptials occurred on January 21st, 1991, and Richard moved in with Marjorie. She was overjoyed to become Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Richard's mental turmoil continued. He was diagnosed as psychotic and was so easily angered that he often punched holes in walls. He was delusional and fearful of germs. He believed his food was tainted, so his solution was to drink bleach with his meals. Dude. Uh, that blew this me guy's away. off his rocker. That blew me away. Bro, no, no, no. <laughs> he did that all, all the time. And he didn't end up in the hospital? Damn. I mean, eventually. He did. <laughs> His mental health continued to decline. I didn't mention, after he was released from prison, he was seeing a psychiatrist and medicated. So that was good, but it didn't seem to be helping very much. And as his mental health deteriorated he decided he was going to stop seeing his psychiatrist. Mm. So his last appointment was on June 10th, 1992. And he withdrew from treatment and quit taking all of his medications. Then in August of 1992, Marjorie recalls Richard yelling, saying his head was killing him, that it felt like something popped. Oh God, that's not good. He complained of weakness. And at that point he fell hitting his head on their coffee table. Did he have an aneurysm burst? I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> he never got up after he fell and hit his head on the coffee table. Marjorie called an ambulance. When the paramedics arrived, Richard was sitting up against Richard was sitting up against the couch, conscious but in a very weak state. He was rushed to the ER where Marjorie told doctors that her husband had been suffering with flu-like symptoms and weakness for the last two weeks. The doctors thought it must be a viral infection and that it should be nothing to worry about, but they would continue to monitor him. But then, later in the evening, Richard would lose consciousness and would fall into a coma. It turns out that Richard had a stroke, and his brain was hemorrhaging. Yeah. Damn, that pop is what gave it away to, yeah. to me. <laughs> Two days later, Richard's heart would stop and he would pass away. Marjorie asked for an autopsy to be performed. The autopsy determined that the cause of death was a stroke. Marjorie used these autopsy results to sue the hospital for malpractice. She claimed that the, what? She claimed that the hospital failed to examine her husband which could have stopped the brain bleed, saving his life. Well, if they didn't catch it right away, then yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like when she went in, she said he had flu-like symptoms. And like, That's true. She, she led them down the wrong path. I think that is exactly what happened. Oh my God. What a fucking bitch. Marjorie ended up winning and received a $175,000 settlement. Damn. It was supposed to be 250 but she had to pay her lawyers. So she was very disappointed with this amount of money. She felt she was cheated. She deserved more, and she became obsessed, fixated on how she could get more money, and fixated on who was trying to take it from her. Ugh. Before Richard Armstrong was cremated, 
Marjorie did something weird. She asked for a piece of his leg bone with the intention of cloning him one day. What? What? Okay. And I believe they said, and now. Sorry. Marjorie vowed she wouldn't date another man until she received mystical guidance from a psychic. She met the psychic in 1993 in Chautauqua County, New York, so she could contact her dead husband's spirit. But then the psychic predicted that Marjorie would soon meet another man. She said he would come from around Cleveland, that he would be tall, 10 years younger than her, and have red hair and a beard. The psychic told her that she would meet him in nine months. According to Marjorie Deal Armstrong, Nine months later, in 1993, she met 35-year-old James Roden, or as everyone called him, Jim. She saw this as fate. Now, he looks like he just has a red beard. <laughs> Not quite a red head. <laughs> <laughs> These psychics, you know. You know what's really strange to me? Because you showed this picture earlier when we were talking about him. He looks like, I don't know, it's just the eye area, not necessarily the unibrow, but he looks like my brother and my dad right there. Oh, wow. It's really strange looking at this picture. Interesting. It's just those features. Anyway. He does kind of have an thing about him. Oh, bleep that out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. One of them actually I mean, related to him. He is probably <laughs> one of the most attractive people she's dated. I think. I think so. He's got that awkward weirdo look going on. Like he hasn't <laughs> taken a shower in a while, but. <laughs> oh, I have bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> also, maybe I'm seeing the familial resemblance and not that's really being good. very attracted yeah. to that yeah that's that's probably for the best yeah you know all right marjorie met jim while she was out on a date with another man jim was a recently divorced alcoholic who had just moved to erie from cleveland oh ding 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 jim approached marjorie and her date and asked if they were married and if he could buy them drinks They obliged, and the three stayed out till 2 a.m. drinking and talking. So he crashed their date? Yep. Oh, my God. That's really weird. I know. (laughs) And they were just like, sure. (laughs) They stayed out all night drinking and talking with him. And the next day, they ended up going to breakfast. Uh, Did they have a threesome? I don't know, Mallory. (laughs) Pervert. Just sounds like maybe they did. (laughs) I don't know. But they ended up going to breakfast the next day, and then Marjorie's date ended up dropping Jim off at his motel. But that wasn't the last of Jim. He called Marjorie incessantly. Marjorie liked his intensity. He was definitely her type. Obsessive and violent. Oh, God. In fact, just days after meeting Marjorie, he showed up at her front door, bags in hand, and basically forced her to let him live with her. Damn. The relationship was volatile. 
but it was the only kind of relationship Marjorie knew. Jim was arrested and jailed several times for assault and threats he made to Marjorie, but every time he was released, the two would reunite. This went on for years. Together, they built a small apartment in her attic where Jim would stay. They did this so they could claim that Jim was her tenant so they could both receive government aid. Because if they were living together, they would only get one government check. Yeah. And they needed two. Yeah. So, this house was not unlike her last home. It was filled floor to ceiling with garbage, toys, and furniture. The couple got through the house by way of goat paths. What does that mean? Like little paths they would create Just, to walk through. Yeah, like when you watch hoarders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. The floor was covered in feces oh. from Marjorie's seven cats. Oh, of course. There were more than a handful of cats. It's always mm-hmm. how it is. Because they like to hoard, you know, anything. Yeah. They. My sister, one of her dogs, came from a hoarding situation where there were 90 fucking dogs in a trailer. Oh, my God. And he was... Oh, he was, my God. How do they even fit? Like... I do not know. He was inbred. I think most of them were. And so he was, like, born blind and... Aww. Yeah. Poor buddy. But now he's with a better family. They love him. Yes. Yeah, so the floor was covered in feces <laughs> from Marjorie's seven cats, but it was home for Jim and Marjorie. What a home. Home, sweet home. Sometime in July 2000, Marjorie had got some bad news. Her mother, Agnes Deal, had passed away at age 83. She hadn't had much of a relationship with her parents since their falling out years ago, but Marjorie was hit hard by this news. And then her thoughts went elsewhere. Her parents had gained a substantial amount of money over the years, upwards of around $1.8 million. Marjorie saw this money as her inheritance, but her father was still in control of the estate. Harold Deal was not the biggest fan of his daughter. He had no interest in supporting her anymore and much preferred to give money to his friends and his church. When Marjorie learned that her father had been giving away what she saw as her inheritance, she freaked out. Marjorie could not let this go. She met up with one of her and Jim's fishing buddies to ask a favor. He was a man by the name of Ken Barnes. Oh my god. I think it's just the quality of the photo, but it makes him look like a burn victim. (laughs) Oh dear. He definitely looks like someone who would come out from under a bridge and say, None shall pass! (laughs) Or... (laughs) Or what? (laughs) You got some cocaine? That's funny you should say that, Mallory, because he would go by the name of Cocaine Kin. No way! Really? Oh my god. Wow. Yes. I can't believe I You got the nail right on. Read that the one, head. So, yeah. <laughs> Cocaine Ken. Cocaine Ken was a local TV repairman 
an earring, but he didn't just make money fixing TVs. He was also the neighborhood pimp and drug dealer. Wow. Pimp? Mm-hmm. Damn. He was a longtime trusted friend of Jim and Marjorie, so she felt comfortable asking him for help. She wanted Ken to kill her father. Oh, my God. Marjorie! Bad girl. <laughs> she told him all about her inheritance and how her father was squandering all of her money. She went on and on and on about how he was donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to the church and paying off his friend's loans. She had to get that money before he could spend any more of it. Ken didn't really take Marjorie seriously at first and played along telling her it would cost her. But then Marjorie asked, how much? <laughs> Ken threw out an astronomical number. He said, a quarter of a million dollars. And Marjorie said, no problem. She just had to figure out how to get the money. Ken figured all of this would pass and that would be that. But then Marjorie came back with a plan to get him the money. They could rob a bank. Mm. She was obsessed with the idea. She'd often visit Ken giving him updates on the plan. She told him that she had recently reconnected with her ex-fiancé, Bill Rothstein, and that he had agreed to help with the robbery. This looked like it was actually going to happen. Despite all of this, Ken says he never intended to go through with killing Marjorie's father. Soon enough, Ken, Marjorie, and Bill were meeting regularly to work on their plan. Marjorie's boyfriend, Jim, was also involved. He was assigned the role of getaway driver. Oh my God. Ocean's Eleven over here, baby. <laughs> Yeah, for real. This is a beautiful <laughs> sight. What a cast of characters, too. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> but Jim confided in Marjorie that he was starting to get nervous and wanted to back out of the robbery. Oh, God. So you get murdered then. <laughs> uh, Marjorie refused. So Jim threatened to go to the police. And you know Marjorie was not about to let that happen. Nope. On August 10th, 2003, Marjorie shot her boyfriend two times in the back with a shotgun as he slept in Again. his upstairs apartment. Again! I guess it worked out for her the first time, so... I mean, you gotta go for them when they're sleeping. Yeah. You don't want to... Reliable method. I mean, it's reliable. God Dang. These mug rugs are quite excellent. Aren't they? It's absorbing all my condensation. I really love these. It makes it... Well, they're so cute. They are super cute. I was looking at her site the other day. I love everything she's making. I know. Everything looks so cute. I want the little bag with the sunshine yes! on it. I love that one. So cool. Anyway, Sorry. Go check out Sunshine Dreams Mercantile Company on Instagram if you want to know what we're talking about. <laughs> not sponsored. <laughs> not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. We just... We make zero money from this. Yeah. Maybe someday. Mm, I don't know. <laughs>
Yeah, so I said, Marjorie shot her boyfriend two times in the back with a shotgun as he slept in his upstairs apartment. Marjorie knew just who to call to help her get rid of the body. Bill Rothstein. She had a hold over him. He had never gotten over Marjorie after their engagement ended. He took no issue with helping her get rid of Jim, who he now saw as an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> I mean, technically, I guess. Yeah. God. He even said that to police. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was like, well, yeah, it was her boyfriend. Well, I guess now her ex-boyfriend. Okay. Bill went to Marjorie's home and found Jim upstairs slumped against the wall on a bed. He dragged Jim's body onto a tarp, wrapped him up, dragged the body down the stairs, and brought him out the back of the house and loaded him into the van. Bill took Jim's body into his garage and put him into his freezer to store him until he could figure out what to do next. He brought Marjorie's shotgun into the kitchen where he chopped it up and melted it down with a torch. God. He then disposed of the weapon all over Erie. Now that that was taken care of, they needed to focus on the bank robbery. It was really happening now. They were in too deep. Like, you can't just kill someone and then back out of the bank robbery at this point. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> you have now killed someone because they were going to go to the police. So now the bank robbery is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's a lesser crime <laughs> than what you've already committed. <laughs> Marjorie, Bill, and Ken had concocted a plan where one of them would go into the bank with a fake bomb, hand the teller a letter, and get out of there with the money. But none of them wanted to be the one to go into the bank. They had to find someone who was not involved. Someone who would claim they were taken hostage. But who? Ken asked one of his sex workers, Jessica Hoopsick, if she knew of anyone who could do it. They needed someone they could scare into robbing the bank. Someone who wouldn't run or contact the police. She knew just the person. Brian Wells. I forgot about this. I remember now. Brian would drive Jessica to Kins so she could buy crack. But before she made her purchase, Brian would take Jessica to the second floor of Kins' house and pay for sex. She would then use that money to purchase the drugs. It was a one-stop shop, and everyone was happy with the arrangement. Jessica told Ken that Brian was perfect for the job. He was a total pushover, and he'd do anything for her. One day, Jessica brought Brian over to Ken's. It didn't seem suspicious at all. It was their usual place where they bought drugs and made transactions. <laughs> Quote, unquote. She didn't introduce him to anyone, but it allowed Ken to get a good look at him. They all agreed that he would be the perfect fall guy. Brian was a man of few words, a 46-year-old pizza man who found joy in scavenger hunts, puzzles, and, well, Jessica Hoopsick. They asked Jessica for his work schedule, and the next day, Marjorie gave Jessica $1,500 for her help. We're not sure if Brian was ever aware he was a part of this scheme, but what we do know is that on August 28th, Marjorie met up with Ken at his house. Ken asked her where Jim was, and she told him he was homesick with the flu. 
Jim was the one who she murdered. Yeah. Oh, my God. Another guy would be helping them. Bill's roommate. His name was Floyd Stockton. And he was actually on the run for rape charges after he had sexually assaulted a disabled teenager. I swear to God. What is wrong with all these people? Every person in this story is the worst. Never go to Erie, (laughs) Pennsylvania, apparently. (laughs) What the hell? So he was taking the place of Jim Roden. After Ken's house, Marjorie went to a Shell gas station where she met up with Bill Rothstein. That's where they made the call to Mama Mia's Pizzeria. They placed an order for two pizzas and gave an address to an isolated area near Bill's house. While Bill and Marjorie ordered the pizzas, Ken and Floyd made their way to the radio tower, and Bill and Marjorie joined them shortly after. When Brian arrived, he got out of his car with the pizzas in hand. He handed the pizzas to Bill, who put the boxes on the trunk of his car. According to Ken, the group started to eat the pizza while Brian was waiting to get paid. Just thinking, like, everyone's just eating pizza? What? (laughs) So casual. Yeah. Then, out of nowhere, Floyd Stockton came from around the car with the collar bomb. Oh, my God. Ken said Brian knew something was wrong and started to try and run. And that's when Ken told him to stop being a puss and he smacked him across the face. Marjorie and Floyd put the bomb on Brian's neck. Then Marjorie pulled out a big t-shirt and put it on him to cover up the bomb. With the word guess written on it for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> they gave him the note and the cane gun and told him if he had any trouble, use it. That there were instructions on the cane. This is the most bizarre situation to me. Because there's four people that knew each other. Like, I don't know four people, I don't think, that would do this shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> Maybe if you hung out with drug dealer pimps. Yeah, I guess so. And lived in Erie, Pennsylvania. But how does Marjorie I don't know. know these people? Like, how did she fucking, how does she attract these people? It's like she's a magnet for them. Yeah. I think she knew these type of people could be her puppets and she could get things from them. That's probably true. Yeah. I'm just wondering why it's so frequent that she's, (laughs) she's met so many people that are willing to do horrible things for her. I know. So after they gave Brian the cane and the note and locked the bomb on his neck, They sent him off on his scavenger hunt. Then the group parked across the street from the bank and just looked on with binoculars. They saw Brian exit the bank with a bag and drive off. The police almost immediately showed up, so the group decided to get out of there. They all went to Bill Rothstein's, where they switched vehicles. I have a question. Sure. I don't know if it's ever said... I'm assuming they had to have requested Brian as the driver. Because if you're calling a pizza place, how would you know what driver you're going to get? Well, they had asked for his work schedule. Okay. And the owner had answered the phone, but the owner didn't understand what they were saying. So maybe, I don't know if they've requested him on the phone or if 
he was just the only one working at the time. Yeah. I don't know. But they did know his work schedule. Okay. Later that night, Ken recalls sitting at home watching the news and feeling bad. Brian was never supposed to die. The bomb was never supposed to be real. He said that was between Marjorie and Bill. Oh my God. So this is a photo from the docuseries after the bomb. It's horrible. The day after the bank heist, Floyd Stockton moved out of Bill's house. The day after that, Robert Panetti, Brian's friend and co-worker, died from what was deemed an accidental overdose. There is no evidence that Panetti was involved in the pizza bomber case, but Ken Barnes claims he was at the pre-planning meeting before the robbery. But who knows? Hmm. That's interesting. Three weeks after the death of Brian Wells, Bill Rothstein makes the 911 call to report a dead body in his freezer. He tells them that there's a woman in his house by the name of Marjorie Deal Armstrong, and she is the one responsible for the death. As we know, the man in the freezer is Jim Roden. Police immediately bring Bill in for questioning while they go to investigate the claim at the Rothstein residence. Like Marjorie, it appeared that Bill was a hoarder. Either that or Marjorie had been living there for the last three weeks and had brought her trash with her. <laughs> um, which was it? I don't know. Oh, okay. There'll be a lot of trash to move, though. I don't know how quickly she accumulates it. That's true. She could just fucking magnet trash to her like she magnets well, trash people to her. Yeah, but, you know, maybe they're all hoarders because... She was a hoarder. Maybe Bill Rothstein's a hoarder. Ken Barnes was a hoarder. Because I go in his house and it's trashed. Is it really? Yeah. God dang. I remember they found two dogs in his house that were like on the brink of death. And they had to oh put them down. Oh my god. What I don't the know. fuck? I don't know what's up with these people. I'm so confused. <laughs> and to think that this guy like is a pimp and like people are having sex in this like trash-ridden yeah. house like it's disgusting i don't understand the police said the house was like an episode of hoarders times 10 oh god they had to clear a path to make their way through they found their way into the garage where they found the freezer hidden behind a tarp inside the freezer they found a man frozen solid mm. they went upstairs to look for the suspect and they found Marjorie Deal Armstrong sitting on a bed, ranting and raving, claiming that Bill was the one that killed the man. Mm -hmm. They took her into custody. The officer that drove her back to the station noticed an obscene odor. It appeared the woman hadn't bathed in weeks. My God, and she used to brush her teeth 32 times a day. Maybe she probably still does, but bathing? Nope. That is so... Nuggets. P.S. It was summer and the AC wasn't working. And Yum. basically, it was mm. a miserable ride back to the station. Yummy. Reminds me of, I think I've mentioned Stinky Church Boy on this podcast. Oh, yeah, you have mentioned him. <laughs> yep. Because we rode in a non air conditioned bus back from some church trip and the whole time it smelled like his bo oh uh, like it was so potent 
I don't know how it could have possibly filled the whole bus, but it did. Where's he? Where's he at now? I have no clue. Man. Yeah. So it was a miserable ride back to the station. The man in the freezer was identified as James Roden, and he was frozen solid. They had to move the entire freezer to the coroner's office. His body was actually frozen to the sides of the freezer. God dang. The FBI learned that James Roden was shot and killed with a shotgun about three weeks before the bank robbery. Marjorie told her attorney that she had nothing to do with the death of James Roden, that they'd been together for ten and a half years and they were in love. She said she found him dead when she got home. She said she wouldn't be surprised if Bill shot him in a jealous rage. Mm-hmm. She said that Bill wanted to cut him up with a hacksaw and that he had actually bought a meat grinder the night she was arrested. Well, you know what, Marjorie? Bill's never killed anyone before, and you have, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell him, Mallory. <laughs> Bill Rothstein's best friend was surprised by the news. He said Bill didn't have a mean bone in his body. He said he was extremely intelligent. He didn't finish anything, but he was smart. This friend had met Marjorie once before in the past, back when she and Bill were dating, and he immediately didn't like her. He described her as mean, nasty, and controlling. But Bill was stuck on Marjorie. She had him under some kind of spell. Ooh, yikes. We have some hoarder pictures going on here. Police then search Marjorie's home. And let me tell you, they had to dress like the freaking Ghostbusters to go into that place. (laughs) Probably worse. They were head to toe in protective gear. The house was filled to the brim with clutter, trash, feces. They found two deceased cats. Oh my God, why do they always find dead cats? And many other cats living around the house. Oh, it's so sad. <sighs> God damn it. It makes me so mad. I want to fucking, I want to murder someone now. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I can't, for some reason, like, at my job, I listen to, like, people who die all day or whatever. Yeah. But animals, dude. And especially people who hurt animals. People who hurt animals and people who hurt children. Because they're, uh, um... Fucking flame ignites in my brain. Oh, yeah. Because they don't have any defense. Yeah, exactly. And they're innocent. Right. Completely innocent. Completely innocent. innocent. Yep. So they found the feces. They found the cats. Blah, blah, blah. Because Bill was cooperating with police, he remained free on bail. He gave the police a tour of the crime scenes. Bill took the police to Marjorie's home and matter-of-factly walked the police through the story. I feel like I said police a million times, but I'm not going to start over. <laughs> it didn't sound weird to me, so. He showed them where he found Jim Roden, upstairs, slumped on the bed, and he told them about how he dragged him down the stairs and how the stairs were covered in blood. So Bill, being the handyman he was replaced the steps, and cleaned up any evidence with hydrogen peroxide. Damn. He then takes them to his home off Peach Street and shows them where he hid the body in the freezer. 
and where he tossed the mattress that he found the body on. He takes them to the kitchen, where he explains that he chopped up the rifle and melted it with a torch. He tells them that he brought in black plastic to cover the windows to prevent anyone from looking in while they were cutting up the body. He said all of this was just to buy time, that he never wanted to do anything to harm Jim's body. He said he went to the store and purchased items like a meat grinder all in an effort to buy time while he figured out what his next move would be. His options were kill yourself or go to the police. The police found a garbage bag filled with blood and a razor blade. And Bill admits that it was his blood and that it was from when he attempted suicide. Oh, God. He had written a suicide note for police, which they found. It read, Police, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Okay, Bill, right there, you got me thinking maybe this does have something to do with the Wells case. Um, you're not really providing an actual red hair. Maybe yet. you're not the smartest man in the room. <laughs> Number two, the body in the freezer in the garage is Jim Roden. Number three, I did not kill him nor participate in his death. Four, my apologies to those who cared for or about me. I am sorry that I let them down. Five, I am sorry to leave you this mess. Bill Rothstein. Something that was learned about Bill was that before the bank robbery, he was dealing with some family drama. Bill was living in his parents' house after they died, and his siblings wanted to sell the house. But Bill, who was the executor of the estate, did not want to move. So he ended up lying, saying that he put the house on the market for $90,000, when he actually listed it for $250,000. Oh my god, that's such a huge difference. (laughs) Oddly, that's the same amount of money that the robbery note asked for. Ah, interesting. On September 21st, the Erie police charged Marjorie with the murder of James Roden. In the preliminary hearing, Bill Rothstein testified that Marjorie shot James over a money dispute. Bill was also facing charges and jail time, but due to his cooperation with police, he was off on bail while he awaited his hearing. He was being charged with the abuse of a corpse, but he would never make it to trial. Bill Rothstein died on July 30th, 2004, from terminal cancer. He never admitted to being part of the bank robbery and the death of Brian Wells. He died almost a year after the heist. Police think he knew he was dying of cancer and this robbery was his last effort to show that he was smarter than everyone else. While he did turn Marjorie in for the murder of Jim Roden, he took their secret to the grave. Eventually, Marjorie confessed to her cellmates that she killed Jim Roden. She claimed it happened after a fight about another woman. One of her cellmates said that Marjorie would stand in front of the mirror for hours, just shaving her eyebrows off. Oh my god. Why? 
Yeah. Why? 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 She looks so insane without eyebrows. <laughs> uh, it's like she's scary. Yeah, she looks scary. The inmate claimed that she would do creepy stuff like this to manipulate the guards into thinking she was batshit insane. Hmm. She'd tell inmates that she planned to play the crazy card to get out of what she did. She requested a plea deal claiming she was not in the right mind when she killed Jim Roden. I mean, it's honestly not a bad play on her part because she's got a lot of mental health history. <laughs> yeah, and she doesn't have eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> on January 7th, 2005, Marjorie was sentenced to a minimum of seven years and a maximum of 20 years for the third-degree murder charge of her boyfriend. Her attorney felt confident that she'd get out at that time for good behavior. She was placed in a psych ward for three months before being transferred to the State Correctional Institution at Muncie. The FBI continued to try and figure out who was involved in the pizza bomber case. Well, as we know, Marjorie loves to talk. And she had four inmates who she did a great deal of talking to. She had told them that she killed James Roden because he was going to go to the police about their pizza bomber plot. Oh my god. One inmate, Kelly Makala, actually took notes during her and Marjorie's conversations. Marjorie even saw her taking the notes and didn't even give a shit. What the fuck, she probably Marjorie? thought she probably thought that she was going to Write a book about Marjorie's brilliance or something like that. <laughs> yeah, probably. D- delusions of grandeur. Yes. She sent the police her notes and followed up several times asking the police to get them to the FBI. But they ended up sitting in a folder stuffed in the back of a drawer where they were found years later. Oh my god, how frustrating. Apparently <sighs> the FBI and the state police have like a feud... Really? They fight over cases and yeah. there's like ego and all that. Oh my god. Anyway, the FBI thought maybe they were withholding that as like a power play or something. Wow. So these letters were called the snitch letters. She said Bill made the collar bomb. That a man named Floyd Stockton, Bill's old rapist roommate, was involved that the murder of her boyfriend James was connected to the heist and also that they had measured Brian Wells's neck before building the collar bomb. These are all things Marjorie said. Uh, okay, Marjorie. After the James Roden case was over, the police put all of Marjorie's belongings into storage. But now that Marjorie was associated with the pizza bomber case, the police offered the items to the FBI. How kind. Thanks, guys. They spent forever sifting through the junk when suddenly they found a clue. A clue, a clue. Is that from a kid's show or something? Yeah, Blue's Clues. Oh, okay. (laughs) It was an angry letter that Marjorie had sent the bank. A bank manager had allowed her father to empty her mother's safety deposit box. The bank was the PNC bank. Marjorie had beef with PNC Bank. Oh, my God. They had allowed her father to take her inheritance. (laughs) And to top it all off, 
They were rude. <laughs> oh my God. The FBI went to interview Marjorie. The agents remember that the first few minutes of every interview, Marjorie would yell at them, asking them why they were there, what they wanted. All you had to do was compliment her, and she'd calm right down. She told them that she knew for a fact Bill used to have a blue Astro van, and that he was driving it on the day of August 28th, that he had it towed away after the heist. All of that correlated with what the lead officer had seen when they were following the scavenger hunt. This information led them to dig into Bill Rothstein's file, which is where they found some more clues. They found items that had his handwriting, and it matched some of the... They did that that thing where you, like, scribble over the notebook paper and see the handwriting on the other Uh, side. Yeah. The handwriting that they saw from that match his handwriting so it was like his notepad okay like you're talking about made from impressions yeah like from another page or whatever yeah so that that crazy this crazy notes they wrote they would do the scribbly thing and see the impressions from the other pages pages, written on and they saw his His handwriting. handwriting Marjorie began pointing fingers at Ken Barnes, her fishing buddy, claiming that he definitely was involved. They brought him in for an interview two years after the heist. Ken Barnes and Brian Wells had a mutual friend, a sex worker named Jessica Hoopsick. When police found her and started asking questions, she claimed not to know anything. But she later came forward with a confession. She admitted that she had made Brian a target for the bank robbery, that he was not involved voluntarily, that he was a good man, innocent. She said she regretted putting him in that situation. no shit. Why'd you do that? That no one knew anyone would get hurt. She told the FBI that during that time, she was high all the time and would do anything for money or her next fix. She was deeply sorry for her involvement. Ken Barnes also confessed to being involved in the robbery. He told the FBI that there was a pre-robbery meeting at Bill Rothstein's house. When the agents asked who was at the meeting, he said, Bill Rothstein, Marjorie Deal, Floyd Stockton, Robert Panetti, and Brian Wells. He said that he was supposed to be the lookout and James Roden was supposed to be the getaway driver. Marjorie also claimed that Brian was involved. I really wonder if Panetti was involved. I'm so curious. I have no idea. I want to know. So both Ken and Marjorie claimed that Brian was involved. But both Marjorie and Ken had something to gain from that narrative. Yeah. If Brian was a co-conspirator, then they would not be eligible for the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So that was their story, and they were sticking to it. That makes sense. Floyd Stockton was pulled in for interviewing, but he gladly talked in exchange for immunity. His story matched Ken's as well. He confirmed 
that Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Deal Armstrong were the ones behind the pizza bomber case. He said their motive was money. For two years, a federal grand jury had been meeting on the Wells case, and their term was about to expire. On July 9, 2007, the jury decided to indict Marjorie Dill Armstrong and Kim Barnes on felonies of armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. The grand jury named Brian Wells and Bill Rothstein as unindicted co-conspirators. Floyd Stockton was excluded from the charges due to his immunity deal with the government in exchange for testifying against Marjorie and Ken. That's so crazy. He got complete and total immunity? That fucking kid rapist? Yeah. Ken Barnes pleads guilty to conspiracy to commit bank robbery and using a destructive device during a crime of violence and is sentenced to 45 years in federal prison. He also agrees to testify against Marjorie. Marjorie Deal Armstrong goes to trial on August 12, 2010, and on November 1st, the jury convicts her of all charges. She's sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. There is no parole in the federal prison system. Hell yeah. So now that that's done, I would like to read a victim impact statement from one of Brian Wells's sisters. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. And it's really, really, really tough. Good morning. My name is Jean Hyde. I'm one of Brian Wells's three sisters. I first heard of the suffering and death of my brother Brian on the news. Brian was handcuffed. The officers continued to point their guns at him, even though he was fully cooperating in their custody. And why was no ambulance present to try to help when he lay dying upon the ground, grasping for life? The decision was made to cut off Brian's head to preserve the collar bomb. This beheading of Brian took from us the closure we sought by being able to view Brian at his funeral. Tears streamed down my mom's face as she learned the news that Brian's body was not fit for open casket viewing. The removed head could not be supported in position. More respect was shown for the destructive device than for Brian's body. As a kind-hearted listener, Brian touched our lives in so many beautiful ways by his humble and quiet presence and his devoted, selfless care and service for our family. We believe that what happened to Brian was monstrous. The absence of clarity and truth in the investigation has been a horrendous ordeal for our entire family. Ugh. That is really awful. I totally get where she's coming from. I mean... I can't. I can't believe they beheaded him to get that device off yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah. They're... There was no reason they had to do that. I I mean, I understand that it was like the only piece of evidence, but like it didn't that it didn't get them anywhere at all. Right. It really didn't help their case at all. And they beheaded this man who like we have to assume is innocent in this. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
the only people that said he was involved were the people that could gain something from exactly. him being involved. Yes. Yeah. And even if he was involved, he, you know, was a person who was easily influenced by people. He probably didn't even think the bomb was real. He didn't, you know, who knows? Well, yeah, because he was walking through the bank like nothing was wrong. Like, he was so casual, apparently, about it. Like, he he might not have thought that his life was actually in danger. Can you imagine turning on the news and seeing your loved one oh my God. die? And that's how you learn about what happened? No. No, no. Because I'm sure they were all, like, sitting there, like, that's Brian. Like, why is Brian on the news right now? Yeah. What? Like, that is unreal. Aside from that one thing, the dispute he had with his neighbors that led to him saying he would kill the judge... I mean, he, oh, yeah. he didn't. He didn't ever take any violent action. Right. That was just, his only thing he ever <laughs> yeah. done. It. Yeah. I mean, who knows what kind of like mental state he's in? I don't know mm-hmm. where he's on the spectrum, but it's kind of implied that he might be, you know, on it anyway. Yeah. On the spectrum. Is that what you're saying? I. I mean. The spectrum is like, we're all on it, right? We're all on the spectrum, yeah. (laughs) Who knows where he falls, but it's kind of implied that he was affected by that in some way. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap this up. Prior to Marjorie's trial, a cancerous lump was found on her neck. It was removed and she was diagnosed with glandular cancer, which originated from her breast. At the end of 2012, her doctor had given her a prognosis of three to seven years. She ended up passing away at age 68 on April 4th, 2017, ending her tumultuous existence and her killing spree. Did the documentary or docuseries come out before she died or after? I feel like it's been a while since it came out, so I'm wondering. I think it came out in 2017, and I'm not even... No, I think it came out after she died because I remember at the end they do talk about it. Okay, okay. And speaking of that docuseries, according to them, Jessica Hoopsick gave birth shortly after the heist and she believes that Brian Wells was the father. Oh, really? Holy shit. Apparently, her child bears a striking resemblance to Brian. Oh my God. I, I don't know. I haven't seen pictures, but that was on the docu-series. So that's all I got. Wow. That's such a crazy (laughs) story. It's bonkers. It's unbelievable. I cannot think, when I'm on the spot trying to think of another word for crazy, I can't think of anything but something that just does not make any sense at all. It's doo-doo-ridden. <laughs> it's whack. It's plumptuous. <laughs> plumptuous. That's plumptuous. <laughs> None of it. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's plumptuous. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. There's just, it's, like, really difficult to follow it. 
unless you're walked through it like handheld. No, I think you did a great job. Thank you. Of laying everything out and you kind of like went through her life and then up into like I had a really hard time figuring out how I wanted to tell the story because most people or most like when people tell the story, they usually really stick to just Brian Wells, but yeah. I really wanted to stick to Marjorie. Yeah, because she's got some shit that went on in her life. She is a serial killer. Yeah. 100%. I know. Yeah, she's got three under her belt. So, yeah. At least. At least, yeah. I'll go ahead and go through my sources. Okay. So, there's a Dateline episode called Death Trap, Season 8, Episode 23, that talks about this case. Obviously, Evil Genius on Netflix is a docu-series um, that goes through this entire ordeal. Go Erie is a publication, I guess, like a newspaper in Erie, Pennsylvania. I found an article called Retracing Steps in the Pizza Bomber Case, which was helpful. <laughs> Actually, I found Marjorie Deal's defense attorney's website. <laughs> AmbroseLawFirm.net that had, well, it had some of his commentary on what he thought about oh, what really? happened. Yeah. That's so weird. Which I referenced in the the story. It's a kind of a weird move. <laughs> I found a really cool podcast called Female Criminals, which is a very straight to the point, one person telling a story. It was really good. Oh, um, okay. So if you ever want to like get into any female criminal stories. I'd I like recommend that. It. I like that. There's a website called pizzabomber.com. <laughs> oh my god. And of course they had all the pizza bomber details. And then, you know, it wouldn't be me if I didn't read a book. It was a book called Mania and Marjorie Deal Armstrong Inside the Mind of a Female Serial Killer. And it was written by Jerry Clark, which was the main FBI agent who was on the pizza bomber case. And then it was also written by Ed Palatella, who is a investigative reporter who wrote for the Erie times. He specializes in like criminal cases and writing on like true crime type things. Very cool. That's awesome. Oh, that's actual. Wait, this is actually Jerry right here. Oh, okay. Okay. nice that was really good i've loved this you know what i mean when i say loved this story when i first heard about it and i loved just now going through and refreshing on the details and you told me some things i did not know or did not remember so (laughs) i mean a lot of this wasn't in that docuseries a lot of it i got from the book yeah because i was mainly when i I had watched this so long ago mm-hmm. and I remember being like blown away by it. Yeah. And I didn't really know all of the details around Marjorie and all of the things that she had done in her history. Right. Which to me, like that's kind of the story. The most interesting part. Because she's the one. Yeah, she was the catalyst in she, all of this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I really wanted to understand what the fuck happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope you guys all have a better understanding. 
If you're interested in learning more, there's a hell of a lot more you can find out. There was actually a few other people she was romantically involved with that died under mysterious circumstances. Oh my God, really? Um, but they were like a hanging and... Dude. Uh, I think another overdose or something. Like, So she's yeah. got four, at least four dead partners. Yeah, but I don't think those people had anything to do with, like, she didn't do anything. It was obviously, she had a an effect on them that made them. Bro, that yeah. is insane. Yeah. Yikes. I she know. might actually be Satan. <laughs> Look at this lady with no eyebrows. You know, it's funny, like, because I've seen this picture a million times, but I never noticed that she didn't have eyebrows in the picture. I just thought she looked weird. <laughs> She'd stand in the mirror, shaving her eyebrows for hours. And the um, the inmate was like, you know, it only takes a few seconds to shave your eyebrows. Like, what it doesn't take hours to shave yeah. your eyebrows. But she just kept going. Yeah. That is really weird. But what do you... What do you do with, I mean, she's basically just gone, like, like going, they're like, gone. Just, I don't know. I don't get it. Anyway, guys, Ugh, thanks man. for listening. Thank you, everyone. Join us on our social media. We have an Instagram rabbit hole happy hour and join our Facebook group. We have a chat. You guys can post whatever you want on the group. It's just called rabbit hole happy hour. We never post on Twitter, but maybe give us some more follows so we can actually do something with that. We need an incentive. We do. Rabbit Hole HH Pod. This episode, if Mallory has her shit together, if it comes out on Wednesday, it will be coming out on my birthday. That's right. So, happy birthday, Ashley. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> if you guys want to give me a birthday present. It would be amazing if you like, share, review, review, anything. Like, tell a friend. Tell a friend. Yes. Share something. I don't know. Do something. Do something. Do something. Don't just stand there. Do something. (laughs) Or you could just say hi. I don't mind. Yeah. You could just say hi. That would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know you exist. We, we want to know you exist because we, you are all God's children. <laughs> yeah. And he loves every one of you. <laughs> so happy Easter. <laughs> We're going to yeet on out of here. Yeah, baby. And uh, good night. Yeah. Everyone have a nice holiday and um, have a nice my birthday. Have a nice Ashley's birthday, which is also a national holiday. Uh, it's called Aries season. and then we'll see you when will we see you guys next well Mallory we have been talking about taking a little bit of a spring break because I will be traveling so you know what follow our Instagram page and we'll let you guys know when we'll be back yeah we will be back it just might be a second we're just two full grown adult women who don't get paid for this we have lives guys (laughs) yeah Still have crap going on. Ashley's got more crap going on than I do right now. But anyway, we have to accommodate. So (laughs) be patient with us. We'll be back. 
Love you. Ta-ta for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.